Hey, so before we get into this episode, I wanted to give you a quick heads up about a really cool opportunity. If you are a woman chef in Kentucky, Cincinnati, or the Southern Indiana area, the Lee Initiative is accepting applications for their 2020 awards until February 1st. In an effort to give more opportunities for continuing education to women chefs and to shine a spotlight on talented but little-known chefs in the industry, they are awarding five women with an opportunity to grow and learn. The award includes a week-long training with a notable restaurant group where you learn all aspects of the business, from kitchen to management to accounting. Plus, the five chefs will cook with Chef Edward Lee at the James Beard Foundation, attend the Fab Symposium in Charleston in June, and train with butcher Rob Levitt for a workshop in Whole Animal Butchery. I've linked to more info in our show notes. Definitely check it out. It's a really sweet opportunity, so get your applications in by February 1st. Now, on to the episode. I didn't realize how important my story was. My mom called me her little princess from the hood. Like, who wants to know about me, you know? So I didn't realize it until La Cocina that not only is my food important, but my story is too. This is Copper and Heat, the podcast exploring the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurant kitchens. I'm Katie Osuna. Today, let's go this way. I'm in the Fillmore District of San Francisco. So I grew up here in this building here. That's my childhood home. With Fernay McPherson. I am Fernay McPherson, a chef and owner of Minnie Bell Soul Movement in Emeryville. Minnie Bell's opened in 2018 in Emeryville, which is across the bay from San Francisco near Oakland. But long before she opened in Emeryville, Fernay was fighting to open Minnie Bells in the Fillmore. Fernay was born and raised in the Fillmore district of San Francisco, and her family has been there for three generations. You know, it was considered the Harlem of the West and so rich in African-American culture. And people did not know that because you would never walk down that street now and think that at all. So the Fillmore has gone through a lot of changes over the last several decades, which we'll get into a little more later in the episode. What you need to know right now is that between the 40s and the 90s, the Fillmore was predominantly African-American. It also was still a community. It was also still love. It was also still people who had each other's back. Fernay showed me around the neighborhood and told me about some of the places that used to be pillars of the community. It's called Virgos, and it was a Black-owned store. They were just like family, you know, because if you didn't have the money, they were going to give it to you, you know. Um, They just looked out for everybody in the community. And some of the ones that still are. Um, this is the community center. It's called Ellie Hill Hutch. And has been around for as long as I can remember. <laughs> Though she has some really fond memories of growing up in the Fillmore. Her feelings about the neighborhood are complicated. And right now, like, it's bittersweet for me right now because I did grow up in the heart of the crack epidemic. Like, it's really when crack cocaine was tearing our communities down, like, badly. So I lived through that here. That's one of the things my generation, all of the young men were killed, like a lot in the 90s, you know. So 
my daughter lost her father when she was three. He uh, was from San Francisco and, and, you know, he died to gun violence, you know, from being in the neighborhood and dealing drugs and, you know, so that um, hurt a lot of the kids, you know. I, you know, had to go through it firsthand with my daughter and it really affected her. Like, it still affects her, I feel like. And there's so many other children, even though it was things I loved about my neighborhood. It was also things to set us up for failure. Um, and it did, you know. It's beautiful to see the people who made it through that era. Um, I was always one that felt like I can't be a product of this. I can't, you know, I have to work to do more, to have more. And for her to do that, she had to leave. I lived, I've lived all over. I lived in Oakland, Richmond. Sacramento and then I uh, lived in like near Stockton for a little bit. Sacramento I loved it. It was so different than here. It was so calm. It was so quiet. It was so peaceful. I didn't hear sirens. <laughs> I didn't hear gunshots. Like I didn't hear any of that. And I just was like I'll never leave this city. I love it. So I just felt like I would never come back. Like this is my new life. <laughs> but eventually I wasn't able to be compatible with working at my mm. my kids' school schedule, so I had to come back for some help, from, for some support. But I'm very glad that I came back. I don't think I knew the importance of preserving the neighborhood, you know. None of us did, because if we did, we would still all be here, you know. I was at AT&T for a number of years and it was I was I was there when it was Pacific Bell and then it went to SBC and then it went to AT&T so the company just went through a lot of changes um, and went through a lot of relocations and so the last one I was like you know what I'm not gonna keep going through this because it was just so unstable and I just felt like I'm gonna just do something that I love to do it was like finding my purpose you know so that's when I decided to go to culinary school and I went to culinary school in Sacramento moved back up to the bay a little bit before I finished so I was commuting from San Francisco to Sacramento every day I was crazy. Brene came back to San Francisco and started to look for jobs in the culinary industry but getting a job turned out to be really difficult in the city. You know I was trying to find jobs in industry pretty hard pretty hard to do you know, being a black woman, I would go on stages and no return calls and just apply for a lot of different things and nothing would come about. It was a woman of color that gave me my shot. So my first opportunity was at Brown Sugar Kitchen with Tanya Holland. Leaving there was just my alternative was just to work for myself because I could not find a job. She started her own business doing catering at the local community center and other places in the Fillmore. In the meantime, she was also driving a bus part-time, a job that she absolutely hated. Until she found a program that could help her. When I chose to do my own business, I'd look for business resources. And one of the resources here in the community was called Urban Solutions. And so, and it was like a bunch of classes you had to attend. And like at the end of this class, one it was either one or two people would end up with the food truck. And I was 
that one person that ended up with the food truck. So from there, La Cucina brought me into their program and, and helped to formalize the business more and get the food truck off the ground. And La Cucina just created so many different opportunities um, just with formalizing. Frenet came to La Cocina really wanting to start this soul food movement business. She made absolutely delicious food, uh, recipes that were passed down to her from her family. And so she knew that she always wanted to have a restaurant. But to get to that, we needed to do a host of work. This is Emiliana. Uh, my name is Emiliana Puyana, and I'm the program manager at La Cocina. La Cocina is a nonprofit here in San Francisco that helps low-income women and people of color build and formalize sustainable food businesses. Since they started over 15 years ago, they've incubated around 40 restaurants. So, I mean, I see one of La Cocina's biggest responsibilities to the entrepreneurs that we serve as mitigating risk in every place that we can, right? There's inherent risk in the restaurant business, and we're never going to be able to take them all away. The thing about La Cocina is that the entrepreneurs that they work with face more risk because they don't have the access to money and capital like other restaurateurs. So La Cocina guides them through the process of building a restaurant from the very ground up. Because of the limited resources, our entrepreneurs are forced to be really, really scrappy and to find creative avenues for making sales. The majority of the folks that come to La Cocina to start food businesses are either running an informal business or are intimately familiar with production and the methodology for that specific thing that they're trying to sell. But they haven't really worked in a commercial kitchen before um, and haven't often sold food at volume before. Um, and so to go from that to a restaurant is, is an impossibility, right? What we have figured out is that we can support entrepreneurs in incubating businesses with a path that changes, of course, from person to person, but is it's pretty replicable amongst a host of different styles of food businesses. So, you know, we go essentially from catering and farmer's market businesses to restaurants, so to speak. This is exactly what Frenet did. So the catering was first. And then from there, she moved into a food trailer that La Cocina owns and can rent out to entrepreneurs for prolonged periods of time. And then once I chose to not do the food truck, I just did more corporate special event catering and pop-ups throughout the city. The revenues from it can be significant, so it, it provides a cushion to continue to grow. And then from that, Frenet started to do a host of pop-ups. I did a pop-up on Hate um, at Wing Wings. The former owner there, Christian, was a really good friend of mine, and he allowed me to come in once a week and do a pop-up. Always with the idea and the goal to be able to open a restaurant in the Fillmore. Sadly, that opportunity in the Fillmore has not yet manifested itself, though Fernay will continue to try and will continue to try alongside with her. The entrepreneurs in La Cocina take different amounts of time to graduate from the program. But for Fernay, the process took longer. Because I was very adamant about being in a space here in the Fillmore, but it just did not present itself. Nothing presented itself. For six years, Fernay built her business piece by piece and waited for the opportunity to come up. But when something finally did... I was outbidding. It was for the wing wing space. By the time I was like, okay, well, let me just try to do it. And I was outbidded. So someone just kind of kind of beat me to it a little bit, you know. And I was so familiar with the space from doing the pop-ups there. And 
just hanging out there. I would just hang out there when I wasn't doing a pop-up. So I just loved it. It was like my second home. I mean, can you tell me a little bit about what the challenges were during those six years of trying to find a space here in? Access to capital. Access to capital. Being able to afford to be able to be here. How do you get somebody who maybe makes delicious food or has been working in the restaurant industry for a very, very long time and has, by all means, a a good reputation? How do you get them from zero to to opening, you know, uh, in a system that's kind of rigged and designed uh, against that? That system that's rigged that Emiliana is talking about, we talk about it extensively in our first season. But to recap really quick. As of 2018, about 23% of chefs identified as women. And the women in those positions are making about 76 cents for every dollar that their male counterparts are. So already, there are less women making it to the top. And even when they get there, they're making less money. When you add race and ethnicity into the mix, the numbers get even worse. Of the 23% women that are at the top, 4% identify as Black, 3% as Latina, and 2% as Asian American. Long story short, women, and especially women of color, have to work harder and longer to have a fraction of the opportunities that white men do. I often think about, you know, executive sous chefs at like super fine dining restaurants, right? Like obviously they can cook. And because they've been at those places and have gotten to go to, you know, fancy cities all over the world to cook with other chefs, they've made a lot of connections. And But they've never actually run a business, right? Not for themselves. They've never actually had to wear the burden of like, how the hell am I going to make this next payroll? They've never written that rent check. But these folks can go out and talk to 20 fancy people that they've met and build out a restaurant that costs over a million dollars, right? I'm not saying that they don't, haven't worked hard. I'm not saying that they can't cook. I'm not saying that in a sense they haven't proved something about who they are. But they certainly haven't been building a business uh, penny by penny by penny for six years and they in my opinion don't have as much credibility as somebody who's actually been doing it like when you can say here you go you know payroll for 16 employees i can do that pay my taxes to the board of equalization on a quarterly basis yeah i've done that oh articles of organization yeah i know what that is and who you file that with these guys are gonna have to learn all that shit they they don't know any of that You know, they maybe imagine that somebody's doing it, but like Beanie and Fernay, like they've actually done it all. You know, they can't, they can't afford at this point to have, you know, uh, an administrative assistant or whatever who's filing those forms for them. And so that to me is, is kind of infuriating because, uh, you know, at the point where like, you've already done all this work, you've come this far to really have to fight so hard for a quarter an eighth of the finances or the or the loans that these people uh, can access so easily that I think it's like a, a huge failure of, of imagination on the part of society um, and and a huge point of, of change, you know, like we, we should stop to notice, like, what is it about, you know, a good looking white male that calls so much credibility? Why aren't like, Fernay, Beanie, Knight, Reem, with their gorgeousness and just like grit and ability to deliver, why aren't they calling the same respect and attention?
The women that Emiliana mentioned, Fernay, Beanie, Knight, Reem, all are graduates of La Casina with brick-and-mortar restaurants around the Bay. They've all had to fight for years to slowly build their businesses, all of them with a lot of success. The majority of them are in the East Bay near Oakland because, like Fernay said, affording San Francisco is really hard. San Francisco has changed a lot in recent years because of tech companies moving in and gentrification making property skyrocket. But before any of that happened, the Fillmore was targeted as ground zero for urban renewal in the 40s, all because it was Black. What happened during this period of redevelopment is what led to the crack cocaine epidemic, the decimation of wealth in the Black community of the Fillmore, and in turn, Fernay not being able to own a restaurant there. We'll talk more about how all of this happened after the break. In the spring of 2019, I helped open a few different restaurants within the span of a couple months. You know, the usual process of recipe testing, ordering, frantically working with contractors to get the kitchen built out, and then the dreaded hiring process. We were always up against deadlines and understaffed, and I didn't know how we were going to pull it off. Paired is how we pulled it off. Paired is an app where you, as a kitchen manager or chef, post shifts that you need people for, and Paired fills those shifts with vetted, qualified restaurant professionals. They match people with similar experiences or backgrounds to make sure you get someone who can handle the work you need done. At one of the restaurants I helped open, we were using three Paired pros a night to help us get through opening, and many of them were so great we ended up hiring them full-time. Paired is a great tool to give you peace of mind, whether for a, my dishwasher just called out Friday night, or a weekly shift you've had a hard time hiring for. I would highly recommend giving it a try. To get started with Paired and save 30% off your first shift, visit Paired.com slash copper or use the offer code copper during booking. That's P-A-R-E-D dot com slash copper. But this is these these apartments is a part of that whole redevelopment takeover. Mm-hmm. Like all of these places here. Um, so these were all houses. Since the early 1900s, the Fillmore was always one of the most diverse neighborhoods in San Francisco. After the 1906 earthquake, a lot of Jews were living there. Then Japanese Americans, Filipinos, Mexicans moved in. In the 40s, when Japanese Americans were evicted and taken to internment camps, black folks from the South were migrating for the jobs in the shipyards, and they moved into the vacant houses of the Fillmore. Starting in the 40s and through the 90s, the Fillmore was predominantly African-American. In the 40s, the African-American population in San Francisco went from a little under 5,000 people to over 40,000. Many of those people settled in the Fillmore. And the neighborhood exploded. It became the Harlem of the West, it was called. It had a ton of popular jazz and nightclubs. But in the wake of World War II, cities started to crack down on neighborhoods they considered to be slums, which usually meant communities with people of color. And in the name of urban renewal, they implemented redevelopment projects that decimated communities. Before I was born, redevelopment came in and offered people money to buy their homes, tore down their homes and created what they considered low-income housing and co-op housing, cooperative housing, which is you buy into the building and you own your unit which is where my parents live. But these Victorians and everything around are worth millions now. 
Redevelopment in the Fillmore has since become the poster child of how not to do urban renewal. Buying out homeowners was only one of their tactics. They used the power of eminent domain, or the right of a government to take property, as long as there was compensation, to take businesses and homes from people. The compensation many received was not outright payment, but certificates to be the first allowed back in the neighborhood once redevelopment was complete. But the first phase of the project took 20 years, the second phase another 30. And all these people were displaced and the neighborhood decimated of so many businesses. They were just given money, but stripped of their wealth of something that could have stayed in their family for generations and been worth so much more than the little check that they received. This is one of those buildings that redevelopment built during that time when they came in and we always say stripped everybody of their wealth because just because of these homeowners not being knowledgeable. Like redevelopment knew, you know, the people who were issuing out these checks, they knew how these places would appreciate, but the lack of knowledge of individuals that didn't know and felt like, oh my God, this is a lot of money, but no, this money can be so much more. Redevelopment officially ended in the early 2000s. And since then, people have been trying to undo all the damage done by the redevelopment agency. But prices in the Fillmore have skyrocketed. It's a hit part of town with at least a few of the iconic Victorians left and a music venue that's infamous around the country. I think oftentimes what we see in the Bay Area is that landlords are charging rent prices that they know they can get, but those prices often far exceed what they actually need for those retail locations to be profitable for them. So, I mean, to not sugarcoat it, many, many commercial landlords are very, very greedy. You know, the reality is it doesn't have to be that way. So if we take all of this context and bring it back to Fernay, the reason that she's not in the Fillmore makes a whole lot more sense. And the reason that she wants to be in the Fillmore makes a lot more sense, too. My food truck started on um, Hayes and Octavia. And people would come up to the truck and be like, oh, welcome to the neighborhood. And I used to be like, no, I've been here. Like, how long have you been here? <laughs> like, I, I, this is my neighborhood. This is this is my home. So thank you, but no thank you. <laughs> After six years of fighting to open Mini Bells in San Francisco, Fernay was outbidded for a space where she had been doing pop-ups. It seemed like opening in San Francisco just wasn't going to happen. but another opportunity came up. The problem was, it wasn't in the Fillmore. The opportunity that did present itself was a pop-up kiosk at the Emeryville Public Market. The Emeryville Public Market is one of those large food halls with lots of different kiosks for different restaurants in one place. La Cocina has a pop-up space there where entrepreneurs can get their start. They put forth a really uh, fair rent structure and they provide a year lease. Um, and uh, if the entrepreneur does really well in that space, then there could potentially be a possibility for them to move into a permanent location within the same market. And so uh, Fernay took over that pop-up kiosk, ran the kiosk for a little bit over a year with amazing success. And just about two months ago, she moved from the small pop-up kiosk to a really large kiosk in inside the Emeryville Public Market. When Numbai left out of the pop-up space, they asked, well, do you want to do it? And I was very hesitant to go to the East Bay, but 
I was like, well, let me just try. I was like, I'll try it. You know, it's only a pop-up. If it doesn't work, you know, I don't have to stay. And I did it and it just blew up before my eyes. Like it was intense. Like I was just like, oh my God. Like it was seven days a week, uh, long hours and so much exposure. And I got through it. Like I got through it and we're thriving now. So it's been good. It's been good. I'm glad that I chose to do it. Though she was hesitant to go to Emeryville at first, she's come to terms with it. I think it was meant for me to go to Emeryville. It was meant for me to develop that following and to introduce more people to many bells. So if that opportunity ever presents itself to come to San Francisco, people will know who we are. She clearly hasn't given up on coming back to the Fillmore. In order to do that, she has to continue to hustle and slowly, penny by penny, build her business even more. The, the goal is to to come here at some point. I don't know when before I had this plan. Well, OK, in two years, I'll try to open up a space. And it's like, OK, now, realistically speaking, girl, you cannot do that. So it's more of me really getting Emeryville to run the way I want it to build the different revenue streams that I want to have. We just won a lottery liquor license. So we'll be implementing our little bar program pretty soon. So once that's up and running, once I can get the catering where I want it, then I'll focus on expansion. Then also have the capacity to do it, you know, cause right now I'm still in Emeryville a lot. Um, once I can get all of those streams where I want them to be and it's running itself, then I can focus on expansion. But I don't want to take on more than I'm capable of doing. Like, that's one thing I will not do. Like, I, I learned that just being in Emeryville. Like, I can't take on too much. <laughs> like, I sacrifice my family. Um, I sacrifice a lot. And I don't want to continue to sacrifice them like that, you know? So if I take on another project, it's really, I'll be non-existent. They won't know what I look like, <laughs> like you know? So I just want to be mindful of that. You know, my family is close to me, important to me. And I just want to make sure I'm around. Hey, Tiff. <laughs> While walking around the Fillmore with Frenet, we ran into someone. Tiffany. Hi. here in this neighborhood together. Tiff grew up in the Fillmore with Frenet. Her mother still lives in the Fillmore, though Tiff has moved out to the East Bay. Yeah, she's definitely one that comes out and supports at Minivilles all the time. All the time. It's a number of them that still come, that come out, and especially during happy hour. <laughs> this is why Frenet is working so hard to be back in the Fillmore, even though it's taking her way longer and would cost her way more money. The Fillmore is home for me, you know. My dad is a native of San Francisco, a native of Fillmore, so it's always been home, you know. And I hear so many stories about the rich culture because it was like their Fillmore, my Fillmore, and what it is today. So to learn about what it was before it was my Fillmore is something that is just near and dear to what I do far as being a African-American business owner and wanting to bring that back to the community. As I was growing up, it was still some black businesses here, but now it's like non-existent. So definitely to be here and to represent a piece of the history, I feel like it's important. And I feel like it's important to every business that had an opportunity to go on that street that did not survive. It's important. 
is definitely important. Like to be non-existent in a community that was so rich in culture, it's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. So definitely to be a piece of that is is our community activist pastor, uh, Reverend Townsend, was saying how important it is to be that example for the young women that are still here in the community. You know, it's so many people that come up to me, oh, we're so proud of you. You know, we love what you're doing. And that feels good. That's rewarding. That lets me know that I'm doing something with a purpose. You know, as hard as it is, you know, it it lets me know that I, I do have a purpose and people do see it. My son, he he's 15 now, but he was about maybe 12. And he said to me, um, I need to interview you for a school project. And we were sitting here at this table and I was like, okay. And I'm sitting down with my little glass one. He was like, you know what? He was like, I really need you to sit down with me. Like you sitting down with someone from the Chronicle. And I was like, okay. I was like, okay, this is real. You know, and he wrote this long interview. And I was like, my kids are paying attention. You know, so that's why it's that much more important. Even though the neighborhood has changed a ton and it's going to continue to change, it's important for Frené to be a part of that change and to continue to represent the pieces of history that have been erased. And one thing I always say with La Cucina, um, I didn't realize how important my story was. My mom called me her little princess from the hood. Like, who wants to know about me, you know? So... I didn't realize it until La Cocina that not only is my food important, but my story is too. For Fernay, food is the perfect vehicle to represent African-American history in the changing Fillmore. The food that I cook is food for my culture. It's food for my people. You know, it, it, I cook it the way that we eat it, you know, and, and, uh, and people love it. Food definitely represents so much of African-American culture, like just so much of it, because that's a gathering point for us. That's what had to be created when our ancestors was on that plantation, you know, created dishes for what they were given. So being not able to go back to our heritage in Africa, you know, for a lot of us, it is that point of our ancestors being on that plantation and food was one of those vocal points for them and creating the dishes from nothing you know and being the food ways of America you know so food definitely plays a big part in our culture and how we gather and things like that going into La Cocina I realized I can be me you know I can I can be me I can do what I do and it's okay you know, it's okay. Because I'm like, well, it's, do people really want soul food? Like, they want this amazing fine dining experience. But it's like, no, everybody doesn't want that. Like, it's good. Don't get me wrong. I love a fine dining experience. <laughs> you know, don't get me wrong. But people love comfort. You know, people love comfort food. And then um, I represent my, my hood uh, in Emeryville. Like, our shirts say established in Filmo. <laughs> what we called it, right? So The history of the Fillmore District is incredibly complicated. We've only touched on a little bit of it here in this episode, so I've put some different resources in the episode notes so you can read a little bit more about it. La Casina is doing some really awesome work. 
Like I said, they have around 40 businesses around the Bay Area, so if you're ever looking for a place to eat, I've linked to their business map. You won't be disappointed. Plus, check out their website, lacasinasf.org, to learn more about what they do, to volunteer, and to keep up with some of the events that they put on. We have an episode about staging coming up later in the season, and I want to hear what you think about it. I know it's a really contentious subject, so send me some thoughts at hello at copperandheat.com. If you haven't already done it, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. Then you can keep up with all of our new episode releases throughout the rest of the season. Also, leave us a five-star review while you're there, please. It would mean a ton to me, and it helps other people find us. Overhead, the second season of Copper and Heat is produced by me, Katie Osuna, and Ricardo Osuna. Our story editor is Rachel Palmer. Head on over to Twitter or Instagram and find us at Copper and Heat, or check out our website, copperandheat.com. All the music you hear is produced by us under the name Gamma Gardens. Check out other tracks on Instagram and SoundCloud. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.